Welcome to Our Rule of Law, the podcast, the definite podcast on democracy and the rule of law, brought to you by the Our Rule of Law Foundation. I'm Susanna, and together with my co-host Anna Nelen, we bring you into the heart of the most pressing issues facing our democratic institutions today. In each episode, we're joined by leading professionals, from legal experts to policymakers, academics to activists, to dissect, debate, and discuss the principles that underpin our society. Our goal is to enlighten, challenge, and inspire deep dives into the laws that govern us, the rights we cherish, and the duties we uphold as the rule of law defenders. Stay with us as we navigate through these complex and vital topics, bringing clarity and insight straight from the experts. Today, we're excited to welcome Andras Lederer, the Head of Advocacy at the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. Throughout this interview, we will uncover his aspiration for what lies ahead and examine the reasons behind his persistence and commitment, even in the face of significant opposition from the Hungarian government. Before we dive into our interview, we've asked Marta Pardavi, his colleague and a dear friend, the co-chair of the Hungarian Helsinki Committee, to introduce Andres and tell us how their paths first crossed. So tune in, engage, and let's explore the foundations of our democracy together. So thank you for the opportunity to introduce Andres Lederer, who is my colleague at the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. And when uh, you look him up on our website or other websites where you would find his bio, he says that he joined the Hungarian Helsinki Committee in 2015, and it's, and uh, he is our senior advocacy officer. He also describes that he earned uh, degrees in terrorism, conflict and security, and then in violence, conflict and development. And this is basically the gist of his CV. But I have to say, when I met him in 2015, I had no idea about his CV because it was the summer of 2015, which was in many European countries dominated by the plight and the stories and the political crisis around refugees coming in huge numbers to Europe, refugees fleeing um, wars in Syria and Afghanistan and armed conflict elsewhere. And Hungary was very much at the front line of this. Over 400,000 people had passed through Hungary during that summer. And the Hungarian Helsinki Committee was very involved in both trying to find out what is happening to people who want to seek international protection and also providing information and legal assistance to them. And it was in this context that we met Andres who was volunteering, leading a big group of volunteers in one of the main train stations in Budapest. And the volunteer group was doing all it could to help people find some temporary shelter and safety and information. And it was thus that we became, uh, in a way, working on the same topic together. But it was a very, very crisis, really a, a very tense period of crisis. And so at the time, the Hungarian Helsinki Committee realized that we need more lawyers around the country to help refugees and asylum seekers and migrants to get informed. And we need somebody to coordinate this. And we asked Andres if he would join the committee and coordinate the work of these lawyers because he was doing such a great work coordinating volunteers at the train station. 
And he, to our um, big happiness, said yes. And so he was hired for something which he eventually ended up not doing because times moved on. And soon enough, he started working on further monitoring what is happening to people trying to cross into Hungary. What are the legal obstacles and the practical obstacles? And what is um, the treatment by police and authorities that people seeking international protection are facing? And so he started focusing very much on pushbacks at the border and also on monitoring international and European standards for refugee protection. And this work evolved into advocacy. And as things unfolded in Hungary, things eroded in Hungary on the rule of law front, this advocacy also started encompassing um, rule of law themes. Today, his work very much consists of leading our advocacy efforts on both the rule of law and also on refugee protection. But he does this together with many colleagues, also increasingly other colleagues taking part in the advocacy, because it was, I think, due to his arrival and also the turbulent times in 2015 that the Hungarian Helsinki Committee really started focusing on international and European advocacy, first for refugee protection, and then second for rule of law. But today in 2023, as Andas leads these efforts, we have tied the two themes together because in fact, access or the denial of access to international protection and the way this is done in Europe is very much a rule of law issue as well. And this realization has set in in our work already early on in 2015. But this is common understanding today. And Andash has been, I think, instrumental in tying the two things together and showing how people who are the most vulnerable are often the first victims of rule of law decline. And I'm very proud to be working with him, but I have to say I found out about his very important professional background much later years after we hired him, because we never asked him for his CV when we hired him. It was such a, a, a turbulent time, but also such a fortunate coincidence, an alignment that we ended up hiring a person who has a really deep understanding of conflict, violent conflict, armed conflict, the impact it has on people, the international architecture, policies and rules, that should protect people, but they in fact don't. And I think the fact that he's working today in Hungary to bring these notions and standards back to life and to convey that to policy and decision makers is the best way he can contribute to maintaining a high level of protection of human rights standards. And it's a real pleasure to work with him. He's a super popular member of our team. He has an excellent network both in Hungary and beyond and has built up um, a wide range of alliances for rule of law in Europe. And uh, I'm just curious to see what the next stage will bring for both him in his professional career, but also for our team in Budapest. Hello, everyone. As you've heard in our introduction, we have a very special guest with us today, Andras Lezirer. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for being with us here today. 
as you would say in Hungarian, Sia in Georgian, Gamarjova. Thank you for being here. Gamarjova, Sia, Sia Stok. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for, for having me. I'm very happy that uh, uh, I get to be the first guest. That's an honor, I guess. It, it really, really is. And we were just uh, maybe wanted to start it off with asking how you've been, where are you now, what are you up to? Um, today has been a, a, a busy Friday morning, I have to say. Um, we are recording um, this at the beginning of November. Um, and um, I just sent out this morning uh, a report uh, that we prepared ahead of the Article 7 hearing at the General Affairs Council in the middle of November, touching upon uh, five specific um, areas of concern, issues where the Hungarian Helsinki Committee has been quite involved in, um, where we think that member states should uh, put some questions to the Hungarian government and even possibly um, put forward some recommendations. This is something we have been uh, calling for for about a year, year and a half now, that uh, the Article 7 proceeding should uh, uh, actually move ahead to the second phase where member states formulate recommendations to the country that's under uh, the procedure. So I sent it out and, you know, as things go, Questions already came back. People wanted more information on this or that topic. Um, so I was dealing with that. But uh, I'm also very happy because um, um, my heart belongs still to the refugee program at the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. Although as head of advocacy, I'm, I'm, I'm working on all the topics uh, that we cover. And here in the Article 7 hearing, Unlike on many of the other rule of law topics, the issue of, of the rights of refugees is obviously heavily featured. So finally, I get to talk about refugee issues as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was um, actually wondering, because um, we, we are all students at this point, and uh, we were also always wondering how people like you get to the place where they are. Uh, so I actually was wondering, uh, where did you study? Uh, like, most importantly, what did you study? And how come did you choose your uh, study topic? So I have the, the answer to your question, and then I have a general answer, uh, which I also give to, to, to my students at the university, because I also teach a course at um, the university here in Budapest. Um, but to answer your 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 uh, question, I originally studied um, ethnic conflict resolution and security studies at the University of Aberystwyth in the UK, and then at the School of Oriental and African Studies in the UK. And my original focus uh, was language and trauma, the connection between the language we speak um, and uh, collective trauma uh, experienced by by societies who who had to suffer long series of systemic violations. My focus area was uh, was Chechnya, but um, 
the reason I chose that um, field of, of study was that uh, I ended up <clears throat> kind of accidentally um, in Georgia in 2008, in August, during um, the Russian invasion. And by then, I was already in mad, deep love with the country. So I stayed and I volunteered um, as a humanitarian volunteer there during the war. And I stayed for a month and then I got to know quite a lot of uh, civil society people there. And I went back to work in 2010 to Georgia. And I actually imagined myself moving to Tbilisi and working on uh, the Abkhaz Georgian conflict. And although I was very involved and interested, I also felt that, well, some kind of university um, degree would be useful in the field. Before that, I studied history in Hungary. Um, so that's how I ended up doing that. And in 2014, when I finished my, my studies um, uh, in London at, uh, at SOAS, I, um, I had to move back to, to Hungary. I already had a couple of job offers in, in Georgia, but uh, because of, uh, of having a, a healthcare situation, I had to, to move back to, to Budapest. And by the time I got well, um, I could no longer take any of the jobs I had on offer in Georgia. But then the refugee crisis of 2015 uh, started and I got involved there as a volunteer again uh, and then I was invited to work here at the Hungarian Helsinki Committee in September 2015. Uh, so I didn't study law, I always um, have to, to, to clarify that especially because almost all of my colleagues here um, studied law and many of them are in fact attorneys themselves. Um, I never did. I was interested in it, but I always felt that um, uh, I just couldn't cope with uh, the difference between what is lawful and what is justifiable. Um, so I never went close to the field um, to study, which I have to say I'm a bit sorry about uh, by now, but um, who knows, maybe in the future. I will. But sorry, I really want to emphasize that the short thing is that um, especially when, when, when people go to, to study uh, for their BA in their early or mid-20s, uh, I think we all have an idea or at least a dream of what we want to do and why we are studying, whatever we are studying. But in many cases, life doesn't work that way. Um, that we plan it like a computer game. Uh, and what I can tell you really honestly is that all the best things in my life, also from a professional perspective, happened by absolute chance. Nothing planned, nothing really what I foresaw. Looking back now, I can see how they follow logically from each other. But I just want to say, as 
long as you do something where you find your personal drive that really interests you, um, you will be fine. So don't worry about that part. And if I may, as, as we're already talking about the sort of uh, drive towards doing what you do, and so, you know, I have a question about your personal motivation for as far as your advocacy work goes, and what was the sort of main driver for you um, throughout those years? So would that be some sort of a sense of personal duty or this sort of intrinsic motivation, or, or what would be like the factor for you that motivated you throughout those years? So, as I said, I'm not a lawyer uh, and I never studied law. So helping individual people with their cases, um, as much as I would love to do it, I can't. Um, I'm happy to talk about how I can still somewhat do that in the refugee program when it comes to collective expulsions and violence at the border. But in general, I can't do it. Um, but I'm quite okay, uh, professionally speaking, when it comes to advocacy. And so I'm the type of guy who, who likes to work together with other people and likes to, to, to put in whatever um, effort they can to bring about the common goal. So when I realized I can't help individually that effectively, I thought, well, then why don't I do the advocacy part? Um, so that's, you know, when I joined the Hungarian Helsinki Committee 2000, in 2015, I was the first advocacy person at the organization. Um, so although there was some kind of advocacy activity, obviously, even before I arrived, but I actually built um, uh, up most of this, this work. And that's an important driving factor because that's how I can help actually at the end of the day, a lot of other individual people. The other driving force is that, um, especially when I think when it comes to illiberal regimes, one of the, the most effective uh, weapon they have in their toolbox is to silence dissent and to discourage people from talking to each other, but also to speak up <clears throat> and, and um, share their grievances, but also protest against um, the grievances of others. Um, and maybe for family reasons or because of my personality, it's pretty difficult to to scare me or to to silence me with these tactics and and I also felt that look if I can do that um, and this is a growing problem in Hungary then um, then maybe I should. On that note, I was uh, wondering because in in your bio on the Hungarian Helsinki Committee, it says that working in Hungary uh, is simply the only thing that makes sense for you. Uh, and I was just wondering what. First of all, why? And second of all, following up on what you just said, um, 
can you also tell us more about your experiencing with silencing your job on the ground? Especially as a, as a, as a citizen of the European Union, it would be so simple to just leave Budapest physically, even physically, possibly, um, and, and do something else somewhere else. Um, but I chose not to, and I made that decision a long time ago, but I had to make that decision several times since then. And I keep choosing the same thing, not to go anywhere. But if I decided to stay in Budapest, um, and work on issues related to, to, to Hungary, then, uh, I really can't imagine doing it anywhere else than the Hungarian Helsinki committee for quite many reasons. One of them is the, the, the extremely high professional standards that my colleagues represent, um, the, the never ending, uh, um, opportunities to, to learn, uh, from them. Um, as I said, I've been here for almost a decade and not a day passes by that, uh, there is something I, I, I learned from them. Um, and also because this is an extremely supportive, very tight knit community, professionally speaking, but also on a very personal level. Um, it is a second home, um, in many ways, and that is something you really need when you are up against uh, uh, an illiberal regime that doesn't shy away from, from using extremely nasty tactics against um, its uh, perceived opponents and perceived enemies. To give you a couple of examples what I mean, um, it's, it wasn't just me, but I was also personally a target of uh, a private uh, intelligence agency's operation um, a couple of years ago, where um, uh, people pretended to be someone they were not, uh, recorded uh, discussions like the discussions we are having today, and then edited those discussions in a manner that put the individuals in a very difficult position. And then these recordings were somehow published in uh, state-owned media and pro-government media. Um, a couple of months ago, or what was, when was that? In the spring, um, one morning I woke up and I was featured on the cover page of uh, the largest online state pro-government uh, uh, media where they tried to make a connection between a perceived pedophile and myself and the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. Um, none of that was true, but the way the smear campaigns work is that they don't have to be true. Uh, they just run through the propaganda machine um, and are repeated um, for days uh, on practically every channel that uh, that they own. Um, of course, these things, and I could go on with a lot of examples, these things are aimed at, uh, at discouraging people 
actually the, the people they are attacking to continue their job, but also discouraging others to start doing similar things or to join the organizations that are being targeted. Um, I'm not saying they are completely ineffective, but if you take my example, for example, they have been uh, absolutely useless because um, I'm, <laughs> I'm still here. What I'm getting from your your talk here and from our conversation as a whole is that working within an illiberal, illiberal regime and also against an illiberal regime, as, as in the case of you, requires, well, first of all, a lot of resilience, but also a lot of um, professionalism and integrity, especially when you're dealing with smear campaigns, which are, as you know, as most of them are aimed at, um, especially when it comes to, you know, the sort of crime allegation and crime connections, as you're mentioning, and uh, are directly targeted at sort of uh, destructing that integrity that you yourself possess. But my question is a bit um, different in that regard. I, I just want to ask you about some of the lessons that we, as advocates, both around Europe and not, for instance, within the Hungary and within the liberal regimes, can learn from the Hungarian activists. And what we as Europeans and as European uh, activists, some within liberal regimes and some beyond, are within regimes autocratizing as, as we speak, what can you learn from uh, different movements, from, from all different continents, whether that be US or in some of the resistant movements that we can see emerging across Asia? I think one of the, 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 the most important lessons I've learned over these years, apart from what you, you, you refer to as, as personal integrity or individual integrity, is um, <clears throat> the importance to be up to date and very precise when it comes to the facts that you're talking about. There cannot be an easier and larger mistake to make than to say um, inaccurate things. Um, for example, when it comes to the independence of the judiciary or the situation of, of asylum seekers and refugees. Because what happens, especially in the case of Hungary, where the illiberal regime is actually managed by people who studied law themselves and are, I have to admit, quite good at that, um, is when you don't know your facts and you are caught making a mistake. So one important lesson is to do your homework and be very well prepared. Uh, when it comes to, to all the other examples, um, I would be cautious to try to adapt um, or adopt those um, into any other context. Um, there has been attempts to do that and they failed. And I think one of the reasons is that today's um, autocratic uh, regimes share a lot in common, 
but they are really very different. Hungary is very far or very different from being Turkey or Russia. And today's Russia is very different from today's Turkey, partly because of the war it wages, but for other reasons as well. And from miles away, not to mention continents away, these might seem almost identical examples of, of illiberal regimes. In fact, they are very different. Just if you look at the Polish and Hungarian uh, example, so many people thought that, well, this is the two sides of the same coin. But um, uh, I, I, I very much disagree with that um, on many levels. So first, yes, look for inspiration in all these other um, uh, places but never expect that what worked in, in, in Malaysia, for example, is going to work uh, in Hungary, or even what necessarily worked in Poland is going to work uh, in Hungary or vice versa. That's a very good lesson to keep in mind, um, especially with how many situations are actually going on in the world. But I wanted to ask a question quickly, tying back to what you said about smear campaigns and what was said about you and the Hungarian Helsinki Committee uh, in the newspapers. In in a way, smear campaigns are are a way to show that what you're doing is good because you've gotten the attention from these people and that you're creating a disruption. So stemming from that, I wanted to ask, what do you and Hungarian Helsinki Committee do that has caused you to be a thorn in the Hungarian government side. You know, this is crazy in a way because none of us signed up to be a Ford. Um, it happened and um, it happened gradually, but I think the real breaking point was 2015, 2016 with the refugee crisis. And what happened if I want to look at it from a game theory point of view or how to model the relationship is that you had an NGO that dates back to the end of the 80s um, that traditionally focused on three areas, asylum seekers, criminal justice and rule of law. These are the three topics the Hungarian Helsinki Committee have been working on in the early 1990s, during the 2000s, and over the past 10 years. There is nothing new under the sun like that. But then gradually, each of these topics became a toxic domestic political issue in Hungary, not because of our doing or our choosing, but because of the way the government decided to run and manage things. But as people, and then going back to, to what Zuzana said, um, uh, people with integrity choose their position, uh, the activities they, they work on as, uh, uh, as, as people working at an NGO, not based on what the government expects you to do or wants to forbid you to do, but based on your own personal convictions. So there was no question for us that just because the government wants to paint all refugees um, in an extremely negative manner, 
and then even introduced legislation that uh, threatened with um, uh, uh, imprisonment anyone who provides legal assistance to asylum seekers, so par excellence all of us in the office, um, we said, well, we've been doing this 20 years ago, 10 years ago last week, and we will continue to do so regardless of, of what's happening. But that is this kind of resistance, this kind of refusal to play by their rules, to say what they wanted to hear, actually, that, okay, we will no longer provide assistance to refugees, or in the case of the rule of law, okay, we will no longer criticize uh, the, the, the significant deficiencies and the willful destruction of the rule of law in Hungary. Um, that we are not going to play by these games, that's how we became a foreign. Um, but I have to say that from where I sit, from, from, from where I experience these things, we were never looking for such a role. Uh, we just kept doing the same things we have been doing before, but suddenly one morning you wake up and that is defined as um, as uh, as undermining state sovereignty or 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 you name it yeah. from what are you saying like i really get the feeling that your job is really your passion and way a purpose and uh, i can imagine that your v resistance uh will be a page in the history books and you live a lot of moments that will be included in those history books and uh, i was wondering like what was the most fulfilling experience you had so far in your job but also what was the hardest moment that you had to uh, face wow that's very difficult um the most fulfilling Ooh. One of them is definitely um, uh, connected to, to a specific case, uh, a case of a, a refugee who was pushed back from Hungary to Serbia in 2016. He was our first uh, pushback client. And he, he was then chain refueled to other countries around the Western Balkan route and then eventually all the way to his country of origin. But he kept in touch all of these years with me. I was uh, the one uh, documenting uh, uh, his case and then collecting evidence to be able to litigate at the European Court of Human Rights. Um, and all the things that he went through, I would not expected anyone to remain interested in pursuing a case uh, at the ECHR. Um, but we won his case two years ago uh, related to pushback. But he was also very badly beaten by Hungarian police officers during the pushback. And that was obviously a separate case because that's an Article 3 violation. Uh, we could only start the litigation after the domestic investigation procedure was over. Um, and um, we won that case as well, uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and um, 
I wrote to him the day before the judgment was delivered, uh, saying, well, of course he knows, but you know, just a reminder, tomorrow morning we will get the judgment. And this man wrote to me uh, the day before the judgment that, well, I just want to say, I don't care if we win or lose at this point, because I'm just so happy that you, referring to us, um, trusted me all these years and that I'm also, I'm already, I already kind of feel vindicated and that justice was served. But we won the case, uh, so we should be double happy. But that was a very important moment for me. And also to understand that, that for so many people still today, the fact that you receive a piece of paper from a court with a stamp on it that says what happened to you was uh, unjustifiable and your rights were violated even like it happened seven years ago in 2016 even today it is very important for them and uh, and that is a very good reminder of uh, of why we should continue the work at low point um well <clears throat> I give you an example, but unfortunately it can happen often um, that we are fighting against one type of injustice or one kind of violation and we succeed. But the way uh, the government reacts to that is a new form of violation and you feel like Yes, you succeeded, but have you contributed with your success to a completely new type of rights violation? Um, and that, although, you know, I didn't cause it, but you might feel that you, you probably have a, 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 a responsibility there. And that is the, the, the story of the closing of the transit zones. So we had um, a system from 2015 until 2020 where um, uh, all asylum seekers at some point, including children, unaccompanied children as well, were kept indefinitely in metal containers in the middle of nowhere behind barbed wires. Um, some of the people were there for over two years. There were children who haven't seen a single tree uh, in their life because they were small babies when they entered and then they sort of grew up there until they were two and three years old. Um, with uh, massive work uh, of litigation, mainly strategic litigation, but also advocacy, we um, got to the point where the government decided to actually shut down these facilities. And we thought, great, and more than 300 people were released from uh, unlawful detention. And then the next day, the government announced a completely new asylum system, which practically makes it impossible for people to seek protection in Hungary. And now we are fighting against that system. Um, but when you have an illiberal regime that uses its um, powers among others, to overrule judicial decisions, 
to um, uh, to come up with uh, uh, the craziest legal constructs you can think of, just to avoid providing any kind of remedies, for example, to 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 individuals who think their rights have been violated. Um, well, that 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 can make things uh, pretty difficult sometimes. And if I may actually also on that note, I feel like, you know, I, at the moment we're recording this podcast, we are a bit under three weeks apart from the Polish parliamentary elections for a, a lot of Polish people and I think a lot of Europeans and and even beyond the, this outcome of this election is sort of a, I would say, a catharsis moment or at least a hopeful moment for uh, for the future of, of Poland and um, Europe as a whole. But what's your take on, on the matter? Do you think that the outcome of these elections is something that we, well, of course, we should celebrate, I, I, I don't say, um, but do, do you think we should remain sort of vigilant about the way that our the, the protection of human rights is being sort of picked up on are taken care of in the country and do you think that this actually the outcome of this election is actually the shift that many of the polish people and europeans were waiting for well i think for the second question only time will tell if this is a real shift or real change but and that kind of answers your first question as well um yes i think if you are a human rights defender, if you are working on the protection or rebuilding, in other cases, of the rule of law, then um, it might be, you know, possible that it's easier to cooperate with one government than the other, or that there is a significant change in attitude between one government and the other. Uh, but our role is to be vigilant, regardless of of uh, of of who is in power. Um, so yes, and I think you know, in the case of of Poland, uh, for some certain reasons, partly because the 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 previous government did not have the the necessary votes in the same to to actually amend the Polish constitution. But the damage that's being done is probably, hopefully, not as deep-rooted as is the case in Hungary. Uh, the other reason why I'm hopeful that uh, the problems uh, Poland has are not that deep-rooted is because simply the regime didn't have enough time. Um, try to imagine that that um, there is already a generation in Hungary that is reaching now their political consciousness who only saw this kind of illiberal system in their life. They haven't seen a political debate before an election taking place because this is not part of it. When they turn on the state media, for them, what is normal is that you only hear one perspective and one position. Um, for them, what is normal is that there is no engagement between government officials 
and independent civil society organizations because the government is not willing to engage with critical voices. It is so difficult because for them, this is the no this is the normal. They have never seen, they have never experienced anything else. And that also means that whatever change will come, we'll also have to include teaching these generations on how to participate in public life, that um, it's okay, and actually it is your duty as a citizen to be informed, to have your own opinion, uh, to feel safe, to, to stand by your opinion, to express your views, to participate in, in, in peaceful assemblies. Uh, this hasn't taken place in Poland. Nonetheless, um, um, being vigilant is, uh, is, I think, of utmost importance there as well. Then, then if I can follow up on that as well, and I fully agree with you that, um, that <laughs> I would say uh, give it a couple of weeks and see how the situation develops. Though I also want to ask you, because you know the general opinion seems to be quite optimistic as regards the outcome of the Polish elections. People call it, you know, the win for democracy, the dramatic shift in the Polish politics are alike. But do you think that similar future can be on Hungary's horizon? Now or in five years, in ten years? Eventually, I'm sure. Um, I think... Um, Very honestly, I'm I'm concerned that uh, that we are moving in that sense in opposite directions still. Um, so yes, it will eventually happen, but uh, I wouldn't uh, be so optimistic to say it's uh, it's uh, in three years or four years. And again, um, it, this is no longer. I think about an election, which is a moment in time, people go to vote on a day and then you get the results and then you feel relief. Um, the problems um, we have in Hungary, I think, um, are now much deeply rooted that are not going to change uh, through an election. It's a much longer and, and, and painful process. But it will eventually have, have to happen because there is no other way. Um, the lucky um, thing is that the vast majority of, of, of my compatriots, um, we want to remain an EU member state. And if that is the case, which is, uh, then uh, that comes with clear consequences. Um, so that's why I'm saying it is going to happen eventually, but uh, it's a long process. Thank you so much for that answer. And we, with our rule of law, kind of share the same sentiment that it's a long future, but that future can happen if young people start to care and young people are educated about uh, different topics. You've already shared a lot of very insightful things that I think will kind of resonate with a lot of young people and motivate them to take action and not just sit back and be submissive when liberal governments uh, take charge. 
Um, and with that note, I would like to ask you a somewhat difficult question. And if you had to summarize all your life experience, everything that you've experienced in Hungary, uh, in Georgia, all these combined, what is the singular piece of advice you would give to someone who wants to be a rule of law defender, a democracy defender, a human rights defender, to keep them motivated and to, yeah, kind of inspire them or, and just a piece of advice? Really, I think the most important thing is to spend some time with yourself regularly and really appreciate um, <clears throat> the assistance that you provide to the people, whatever field you're working on, whatever kind of work you do, wherever you do that, there is value in the assistance that you do. And very few of us work on this field, actually. Um, so what you give to that other person would probably not be given by anyone else. And I think too often we, we fail to appreciate the actual work that we do in that sense. Um, so what, um, what really, one of the things that really motivated me over the past uh, um, couple of months, um, and um, this might be a bit too, too personal, but uh, I was very sick over the past uh, six months. Um, I almost didn't make it. And uh, apart from my amazing uh, colleagues and friends and family, of course, who stood beside me, one of the most shocking and eye-opening experience for me was that all of these clients of ours who knew me personally, uh, but are no longer living here in Hungary or have never lived here in Hungary because, for example, they were pushed back uh, and beaten by the police. When uh, they got word of my sickness and illness, um, they all felt a personal duty to, to reach out and, and, and offer their help and love um, in a way they, they could. Uh, some people prayed, some people wanted to send me money, uh, some people uh, uh, simply regularly wrote uh, very comforting and, and supportive messages. But that was when I realized that throughout all these years, what I felt as a daily obligation of mine that I'm talking to these people, that I'm recording their testimonies, that I'm advocating for their rights. Um, it meant so much for them that even after half a decade, when they learned of my illness, they felt the need to reach out and let me know how important I was or I am in their life. Um, so since then, I'm practicing this advice that I just told you to spend a couple of, of, of minutes every now and then and think about what you have done and how that actually helped someone else and then appreciate it uh, because it is actually quite important and we don't uh, see our work like that. You know, we just do and carry on and fight and then find a new area and then fight there. 
but sometimes you have to take the time and appreciate what you do. Thank you so much for that. Uh, wow, I I think with that question, we actually wanted to um, summarize our talk. And uh, that was very, very powerful words to hear from you. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I need to say I have a little tear in my eye because that was really, really powerful. And I promise I'll sit down and uh, write down your lessons because I think we learned so much throughout this uh, recording with you. And uh, it's really valuable and it's something that I personally, I think, would listen back to remind me to, to keep going. Um, and stories like yours are really, really inspiring. So on that note, we would really, really like to thank you for being uh, our very first guest on our uh, podcast. And uh, we we hope that you also <laughs> enjoyed it. And uh, we just want to express our support and gratitude towards you. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. It was a great pleasure. And uh, I'm, I'm just, apart from being honored, I also am so happy to see that there are these kind of initiatives uh, uh, across uh, Europe and growing out of, of university life. So I think you are actually uh, a great example of, uh, uh, of student life and, and, and a very good example for the future. So thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Our Rule of Law, the podcast. We hope today's discussion with Andras Leder provided valuable insights into his work at the Hungarian Helsinki Committee and showed how sometimes the best thing in life are unexpected and the importance of staying and fighting even when you have the option to leave. A special thanks to our guests for sharing their expertise. To learn more about Andras Leder and their work, visit the Hungarian Helsinki Committee website, which can be found in the podcast description below. Remember, your participation makes our democratic dialogue richer. We invite you to share your thoughts and continue the conversation on our social media channels under our rule of law. For more resources and information about upcoming podcast episodes, visit our website at ourruleoflaw.eu. I'm Alain, and on behalf of the Our Rule of Law Foundation and the entire team, thank you for listening. Stay informed, stay engaged, and we'll see you in the next episode of Our Rule of Law, the podcast.